0: Thank you, Professor Lynch, for stepping in and also Mrs. Rye for stepping in the planning for us this morning. Appreciate your assistance today. Um, We'll uh, turn our attention to the Lord in prayer. You're talking about? A powerful potentates in the world. And you have come to rule over an empire that stretches across much of the face of the whole earth. You're so powerful that no one can safely resist you. And it's a death sentence to defy you. In fact, you have become so formidable that you decide to erect a golden statue representing both the gods who have empowered you and the sovereignty of that power. And you designate it as the symbol of all men should bow before to acknowledge your greatness and their submission to you and your ultimate authority. You prepare a great dedication for your golden image Requiring everyone, your extensive government throughout the empire to attend. And you plan a magnificent program for the event, including an impressive gathering of musicians. With everyone assembled and your image gleaming in the rising sun, you have your herald read the law concerning your new image. And the herald cries aloud. To you is commanded, the peoples, nations, and languages, that the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and simply with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that you, the king, has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Now despite your tight grip on the reins of your government, there are jealousies throughout your administration. And those jealousies lead to intrigue in all manner of schemes and counterplots. Recently, you have elevated a group of men in your government who are outsiders at best. They not only come from outside the ruling class of your nation or your kingdom, but they're gifted. And they're efficient, and that makes jealousies rage all the more. Because they're not just elevated to a position, but they really do a good job in what you call them to. Their faith in morality will not allow them to acknowledge the deities worshipped by everyone else. So they ignore your need and show no fear of the threatened judgment for the city. This fact is gleefully reported to you by their envious enemies. I can't wait to tell you that uh, these outsiders have not been bowed like they should. And at first you assume that this must be some sort of misunderstanding. No one defies you. But when you interview these men, you find that it was, that what has been reported about them. Uh, by their resentful critics is indeed true. It's absolutely true. They stand before you and they dare to say to you, We have no need to answer you on this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O King. But if not, let it be known to you, O King, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image. Which you have set up. You are enraged. The audacity of these men. And you are determined that they will pay for it and serve as an example to others who may choose to defy your You were the furnace used for execution, heated to the extreme. You will prove to all your leaders gathered together from all over the empire that to resist you is a fatal error. The fire is fed until it's seven times hotter than usual. It is so hot that even people going too near will be suffocated by the intense heat and flames. There's no escape the prisoners. They're held under a guard that can't be defeated or challenged. You employ your mightiest men uh, to throw them into the flames, men who volunteer to die just to demonstrate that there's no ruler like you in all the world. You're at the height and pinnacle of your absolute power. You can act with impunity, and no one can hinder you or ask you what you're doing. There can be no challenge. There is no appeal. You have spoken, and your will will be done. The men who have dared to defy you are cast into the fire. They're to be incinerated to demonstrate that flouting your command means utter destruction. This is it. This is the moment of your triumph and of your glory. This is when all men will see that there's no ruler like you. In all the world, so that that. because you have turned to do battle with the God of Heaven, the Lord of all the nations, and you have laid your hands on one of His, instead of being a moment that demonstrates your absolute sovereignty, it becomes a moment of bitter and a public exhibition, that you really have no power at all, except according to the will of God. In fact, there, in the midst of your glowing furnace, their true prince walks with them among the flames, untouched by your rage or your will. You can't even set their pants on fire let alone their turbans or their cloaks, let alone the men themselves. And you're left with no alternative but to acknowledge that the Lord God of Israel is God indeed, and you are not. And that you have no power at all against him. Or perhaps you're a ruthless politician. a can I a political hack with a strong military background, and the support of a regime that fears to rule the world at will. You will play in politics, but you will not be crossed. Your word is a matter of life and death to those who are justified. You rule over a people who are hard and resistant, and you rule at the will of, of leaders of an empire, and all of that requires some finesse and, and a little tact on your part. But when push comes to shove, you know that you have the power to act really very freely and with a great deal of immunity and license. Behind you, though you don't realize it, is a powerful, Eastern entity Who is using you, who is moving to order everything he can to your advantage for his own designs? He seeks to employ your power and authority toward his own wicked ends, overestimating his own power and doing so. At the pivotal moment, your political rivals come before your throne to Mm -hmm. beg a favor. Already, you like the prospects of this. Here are your enemies acknowledging your authority and seeking your help and having to admit that they need it. Your sense of power grows with their approach. They make you trap wars. These people are always causing trouble, but you're used to those kinds of maneuvers and you begin the political game. This involves a weary Galilean it has been obviously harassed by the leaders of the conquered people in the You go out to speak to these people who will not come in to you because of some sort of holy way. And you ask the charges against the man, and they reply immediately, if he were not an evil doer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Your reply is just as terse. You take him name judge him according to your law. they want want something more. They want this man executed. Therefore they say to you, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Ah, they have just been forced to admit their own power is limited and restricted. They must come to you in critical matters. You are the ultimate ruling authority. That's a point for you in the game. They have to come to me Get permission to do what they want to do. And they had to admit it. For one reason or another, they're not ready to do what they ask. And your own conversations with the Galilean lead you to offer another victim to their bloodthirstiness, one obviously more deserving of their hatred and certainly of their. So you take Galilee and you have him scourged and you have him humiliated hoping that the sight of him beaten and bleeding is going to satisfy them that you can get out of the situation without having to give in to their request. It is after all a sparring match and you want to get in the last punch. But the crowd is not playing with you. And spurred on by their own leaders they cry out for you to execute him. Nothing else will do. They threaten you, saying, you're no friend of Caesar's unless you do so. You call back in the prisoner, and standing there, beaten before you, the epitome of mockery, you ask him, where is he from? He has the affront you, and the audacity, not even to answer you. As at this critical moment, then you decide it's time to remind the Galilee just who you are and what great power you have in matters like this, implying that if this strange Jew from the north knows what's good for him, he better start showing the respect you deserve. You say to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you? and power to release you You're clever. And you make it clear that it's not just the power to execute that you wield, but the authority to extinguish his life in the most brutal and painful way imaginable. Or to completely release him, set him at complete liberty, as if no charge be made, and ensuring that his enemies couldn't harass his burden what you're reminding him of. In my hand, is the power to do one of these two things. I can execute you brutally, or I can protect you from those who have abused you. But instead of bending under your pure authority, he simply says, you could have no power at all against me unless it had to to give you Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has a greater sin. Implying that you are actually quite helpless before God, work Stating that you only have any power at all according to his will. And that if you dare to employ your power in this way, it's sin. They have the greater sin, but if you do it, you'll be sin. And from this moment forward, you try to release this man both seen and unseen, working around you, dictate otherwise. And the whole affair becomes an everlasting tribute to the simple fact that you, indeed, can have no power at all unless God who rules over all things allows it. And beyond that, that he can take the most wicked and powerful plans of men, and not only bring them to nothing, but turn them around to bring about exactly the opposite of what they, in their imagined sovereignty, plan or expect. It becomes an emblem of the weakness of man in the face of the power, and authority, and sovereignty. These two events, and others like them, are very important for Christians to keep in mind at this present time. World events can sometimes lead even devout believers into a skewed view of reality. I deliberately put you in the place of Nebuchadnezzar and Pilate this morning so that you can consider this matter from their perspective consider what they thought was going on and the power that they perceived themselves to have, and the authority that they thought they had. It's a perspective often held by those who, who imagine themselves to have control of unfolding circumstances because of their supposed power and authority and free will. With every gain of a the point, they feel strong and more empowered, forgetting what we read in First Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that's in the heaven and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you have exalted, you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might, In your hand... It is to make great and he gives strength to all. Yours, O oh Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the master. In Daniel, we read Daniel chapter 2, verse 20. Blessed be the name of God, of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. He raises up kings. He puts down kings. But where does this put you and me, given the present situation in our world? And specifically in our land at this time. What counsel has God given you? For this present period of unrest eternal and for the uncertainty that both the political and the social upheavals and changes have brought into our lives. Well, I will turn your attention this morning to the 146th Psalm. This is a big question, to be sure, and uh, in light of what we've just surveyed, we do have this direction the word of God. In Psalm 146, we read this. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man in whom there's very law. Read that accurately. Now, what does it say? There is no help. His spirit departs, he returns to his earth, and that very day his plans perish. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in him, who keeps truth forever, who executes justice the oppressed who gives food to the hungry the lord gives freedom to the prisoners the lord opens the eyes of the blind the lord raises those who are bowed down the lord loves the righteous the lord watches over the strangers he believes to follow the fatherless he will but the way of the wicked he turns upside down the lord shall reign forever your god goes on into all generations praise the lord what one word is that? Hallelujah. All right. Hallelujah. That's the last word of the song. Did you notice there that all the things that it says the Lord is doing here of all the things that the governments promise? Isn't that what governments promise Isn't that what politicians promise you? We'll feed the poor. We'll execute justice. We'll make sure everything is beautiful and wonderful. And who is it that says that he does that? In truth, through God. So direction number one, as we look at it in this context, comes from verse three. And it's simply what not to do. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. The Spirit departs, he returns to the earth in that very day his plans perish. That same admonition is also found another way in Psalm 818, verses 8 and 9. It is better to trust the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust the Lord than to put confidence in princes what exactly is the saying to us? Do not put your trust in princes, nor in the son of man, in whom there is no help. And this is one of those statements in the scripture that you have to look at and say, what part of this don't you understand? Is this very mysterious? Is this unclear? Is this one of those passages that you have to search through the whole scripture to try to understand what's being said here? The command to not put your trust in dirty princes or rulers is about as plain as any command. They're not fit to provide security or hope or any sort of complacent confidence. So the instruction is simple. Don't do it because it's futile to do so. Don't trust them either way. And it's important to understand that it does work both ways. If you had absolute faith in Nebuchadnezzar, either for good or bad, your faith would be in the wrong place. Even when he was at the very pinnacle, of was a parent, power, and father. Look at the poor man. He imagines himself to be a free and independent despot. They're leading him and the things, decisions he's making and the way he's making those decisions. It's his own pride and arrogance that leads him to sacrifice his mightiest men in order to execute three Jews who won't get on their knees or on their face before his statue. He's going to take his mightiest men and throw them away in order to that he has finally made the Hebrew champions bow before his power and up that instead he's humiliated and the enemies of the Hebrews are defeated and further humbled in office and power. Everything works the opposite of the way it's imagined. So who's in control here? The point here is don't put your confidence in weak pillars like that. They look to themselves and others like as if, as if they're columns of iron, but they're more frail than brittle reeds in the hands of their God. Don't put your trust in any of them. In fact, the Psalmist goes on to say, Don't put any trust in any man or woman. And remember what's intended here. Don't pour your confidence into them, is the idea. Don't rest your peace of mind in any of them. Don't look for security among them, any man or woman, mm-hmm. really. let alone princes or princesses. You mm-hmm. be correct. And there's a sort of subtle reminder here in these words. You can you can understand it to apply. Don't put any trust in rulers, because after all, they're only men No matter what else they may imagine themselves to be. That's all they are. They're just men and women. The most powerful and influential political leader in the world, male or female, is subject to all the same weaknesses, all the same frailties that every other man and woman are plagued by stupidity, willfulness, pride, sinfulness, blindness, manipulation, error and judgment, outright foolishness. I'm subject to all those things, so is the person in the highest office in the greatest man of the world. All sons of man are alike, says Matthew, the man they are strong enough, who, being in honor, did not abide. The truth is that in many respects, their needs are even greater than yours are they tend to be in greater danger from man and Satan. They're subject to greater cares and uh, uh, they can take them to greater sin and they're far more likely to be misled by liars and their own mercenary hearts. Very few of us have somebody coming up next to us and saying, you know, it would be in your best interest. Now, I can make this uh, really work for you and be financially profitable for you if you vote the well, way I want you to how many of you have ever had somebody come next to you and say that to you? See, you don't have that temptation. But they do. You see, beloved, they're no help because they need to be rescued from themselves, just like you and Augustine or Augustine said, Well, it is promised to you that you shall be freed by one who needs to be freed with you. What sort of hope is that? We need somebody rescuing you. We needs to be rescued from or herself. And whatever power they imagine they possess, the truth is they could have no power at all unless it's given them a God. And while they may have extensive plans and operations in mind, they would be wiser if they said, "The Lord wills, we shall live and do this." We are warned away from putting any confidence or trust in them because essentially, as I had you repeat from the song, there's no help. There's no salvation in a man or a woman, no matter how powerful and influential it may appear. Now some people may prove that. And they'd say, well, that would be true if the leader was net or if they were slow. Or weak or foolish. But if they're really powerful and they're really rich and they're really gifted and they're really influential, surely there's room for a little trust in them. Um, We can get a little help from them. We can get a a, a little boost from them. If they're really influential, they're really powerful, and if they're in a position where they can really wield their will, then, then surely we can put a little trust in them. The scripture says don't do it. Don't, because they're not help. The word rendered princes here signifies liberal, bountiful ones. So princes would be accountable. That's what they want to be thought of as. But there's no trust in them without God or against God, John. If anyone imagines that political policies forged in opposition to God and His Word will result in a prosperous and peaceful nation. He or she is a fool and is ignorant of the ordinance of history. Even the noblest policies, laced with a spirit of rebellion against God and His Word, will not spare. Don't be led into believing that. Don't be taken down that lane. We can determine to use every tax dollar that we raise to feed the poor of the whole world. As long as a portion of it is dedicated to extinguishing God, givingness and life in the womb, there can be no realistic expectation of either peace or prosperity for that nation. We can determine that we're going to give every dollar we have to bring peace to the world. But if that money is also being used to guarantee the rights of people to defy God and His Word and to punish them you call Satan sin. Don't imagine that nation. have them all come in. I, I'll, just, I'll tell you all once how great things are for me right now. And so they all come together and he just lets it all pour out. You can't believe how special I am. <laughs> you can't believe how, the word I, I'm, I'm next in the kingdom. I'm number two. And you recall at the same time he said this, besides Queen Esther invited no one but me to count in. With the king, the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I'm again invited by her along with the king. Don't you wish you would be? Don't you wish you were in my business? never been power like the power I have right now. Are you going to be a big steak banquet? And I'm the only one. But then he told them, but you know what? All of this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. King. Yes, I'm getting to sit in the palace with the king, with the queen. But I don't like the fact that Mordecai sitting out there at the gate. Just when Haman thought everything was in his reach and that he had the upper hand against Mordecai, against Esther, against all the Jews, and even the king himself, you know what happened. The ball came crashing down. And the light last sight we have of Mordecai is a man who seemed to be getting his own way in everything beyond swaying. King David says in Psalm 37, verse 35, I have seen the wicked in great power, and spreading himself like a native green tree. Yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I saw him, but he could not be found. And that's what he here. Don't put your hopes in him or her. In any prince, for man or woman, because his spirit departs, he returns to his earth, In that day, his plans perish. At best, the life of any man or woman beloved is a vapor. Whereas one of the church fathers said, All of us, all men and women, are soul and soil. And And that's it. Soul and soil. And when the soul is taken, the soil remains. One day, their pursuits are seemingly wielding great power and influence, commanding armies and navies and directing the commodities and demanding this or that from the world. And suddenly, as with a heart as required by the king and prince of all, and their soul departs, their flesh, once posing a threat to all who oppose them, returns to the dust, and all their plans die. Temptation is to look over the landscape, says Charles Spurgeon, to spy out a man or a woman, and who you think you can safely trust and depend on. But use your best judgment. You will be mistaken. living under his blessing. Once we're submitted to him as our king in Christ Jesus, the promise is that all things are working together for our good, because we love him, we're called according to his purpose. In Isaiah chapter 54, verse 14, and then verse 17, we read, In righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. They're looking for hope, they're looking for trust, you are looking where it put your confidence, put it in your God, in your Lord, in your Savior. He's the one who establishes righteousness. He's the one who, who negates oppression over you. He's the one who takes away your fear and your terror. He's the one who makes it so no weapon formed against you can prosper. Now we look at this not with sentimental dreaminess or fanatical fancy. We know that if we make liege with our God in Christ, we will find ourselves opposed and that we may have to suffer Within in this world, we touched on it this morning in Sunday school. But we know, as Paul says, that if we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified together. That's the promise that we have. All this martial against you in order to rob you of your joy in the Lord will fail, beloved. Right down to the ultimate effort to attempt to extinguish your life itself. The death stroke against you, no matter who wields it, only ends in life everlasting for the one who has the God of Jew for his or her And his power and authority are those of the Creator. Look at verse 6. Put your hope in him who made heaven and earth the sea and all that's in them, who keeps truth forever. The kings and the rulers of this world, they have a limited they want to control thought and they want to control action. But their ability to do so is limited in so many ways. But the great ruler of the universe knows well no limits. Even we're told, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. He is a ruler untouched. A shifting social or political pressures. Jay Alexander says, Two reasons are here given for thus relying upon God. His almighty power has exercised and proved in the creation of the world, and his unchangeable fidelity. How many of you have ever seen a politician go to Washington and you had confidence in them really thought they would do the job and when they got there, they changed. How many of you ever saw a politician like that? They go and something happens. Something changes. You guys have got the truth. And nothing changes him. His platform and his agenda are clear. What is God's platform and agenda? He's going to execute justice for the oppressed. He's going to give food to the hungry. He's going to give freedom to the prisoners. He's going to open the eyes of the blind. He's going to raise those who are bowed down. He's going to show love to the righteous. He's going to watch over strangers. He's going to relieve the fatherless and the widow. And he's going to deal with the wicked. So what's the conclusion here? First, don't let these men the and women who rise and fall in power and influence rob you of your hope or your joy. Men are always far too apt to depend upon the great ones of on earth and forget the great one above. And this habit is the fruitful source of dis- disappointment. joy and peace in the Lord. Secondly, don't put your hope in them one way or the other, for good or for ill. But maintain your allegiance to the one who truly rules and reigns forever. Whatever you may be looking for from these earthly princes and princesses, stop looking for it on them. Um, they're no help. Look instead to the one whose help is genuine, whose help is born of love. We wielded true mercy. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't mourn the loss of freedom, or or the wickedness of duplicity in high places, or the destructive nature of rioting, or the dread of chaos or anarchy? No. But what it does mean is that we do not let those things lead us to despair, or to carnal uh, hatred, or anger. We maintain our joy in the. If you know to have no hope in men or women to begin with, why should you despair when they prove that they're no help? Right? If you don't have that help them, if you are heeding the word of God, and you're not putting that kind of confidence in them, when they end up being no help, why should you despair? You know they're no help. It was Spurgeon who said, to be sure, Politicians and rulers can trust you, but do not burden them by putting your trust in them. So let them trust you. But don't you trust them. Don't burden them with you trusting them. Probably no order but many of and women that so fast to their promises and treaties as many women who. When you know that freedom and liberty are gifts from God, when they are withdrawn, isn't it to him that you should go to know why? And you know they don't come from man, they come from God. And he allows them to be withdrawn, whether by manner or events or whatever, isn't it to him that you should go to know why? And isn't it to him Isn't it to him that we should go for their preservation? Look again at that great agenda. He's the one who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. It's to him we should go. It's the weakness of men because we're drawn to look at the arm of flesh, to depend on men and women in power to either provide for us what we want or to protect us from what we fear neither of which they themselves can ever when we place the hope of welfare Over every other. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 17, we read, The loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of man shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. But the idols he will be shall utterly abolish. And we often think, well, this is talking about the idols in the days of Isaiah. And it is. But it's anybody The they shall go into the holes of the rocks and the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth. In that day, a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold or anything else which they made each for himself to worship to the moles and the bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks for the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. When he arrived at the same earthquake, sever yourselves for such a man, whose breath is in his nostrils, or of what the camera is he. And Fair, says Baxter, was at the height of his power. He couldn't save himself from frogs, mice, and flies. Are you and I going to look for help? or to be plunged into despair by such men and women. The Lord's promise is that he will keep him in perfect peace. His mind is stayed on the end because that person trusts in the Lord. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God, the Lord is everlasting strength. For he brings down those who dwell on high. The lofty city he lays above. He lays above to the ground. He brings it down. Father, and our God. Keeping our eye upon your sovereign authority and reign. Lord, we confess that we are frail. And we are weak. And there are times Lord, when the noise and the distraction of the world pulls our eyes and attention away from you. And Lord, Lord, Begins to raise in raise up in us fear and even despair at times. Lord, we pray that as citizens of heaven, we will always have our King in our eyes. And we will remember that all things are working together for our good. If we are, if we love you, and you're called according you to your purpose. Lord, as these things run their course, you will in the end be glorified. Lord, keep us balanced in our view of the world. And while we are concerned for, and while we grieve over some of the things that are taking place in our world right now, particularly in our country right now, we pray that we would ever remember that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Lord, our confidence and peace would be in you and not in them. Not in them. we would not envy those who seem to be in power. but we would rather worship the one who is in power. Lord, we thank you that where we come short and where we doubt and where we fear let us forgive us, Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us Idolizing of man of their policies. Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength and the grace to have our hearts and minds and love and trust and confidence fixed on you. Lord, we pray for those who are deceived and those who do not know.